0: Thank you for joining us for the lessons from 1st Naz Podcast. I invite you to turn and put your finger in 2nd Corinthians chapter 3. That's kind of where I'll be this morning, but it's going to take a minute to get there just as a word of warning. Uh, I want to, uh, just echoing what, what Luke was saying as he was praying, our brothers and sisters are, are at work Um Heard an email read in a meeting I was a part of yesterday from a pastor in Ukraine, a Nazarene pastor. The church continues to, to be the church. Pastors continue to, try to provide comfort for their people and hope in these difficult times. If you're interested in the church, in the work of the church in the Nazarene during this time, the Eurasia region is kind of the region of the world that we we call it the Eurasia region. Their Facebook page has quite a bit of information about what the church is doing in Ukraine currently, and. Uh, we had uh, uh, Dr. Jim Ritchie or Reverend Jim Ritchie uh, as a part of our service in August to talk about our project in Cyprus because he oversees the that whole part of the world that we call Eurasia, and so he's the director uh, for the Church of the Nazarene overseeing the work. Uh, we have local missionaries, lots of missionaries actually in Ukraine, and so. Uh, be in prayer for for the church obviously we 're in prayer for for the country of ukraine for for peace and uh, for an end of conflict and so let's let 's continue to pray if you 're interested in in what your church is doing in that part of the world that 'd be a way to to connect we 're Today, in the last Sunday before the season of Lent, Lent will begin on Wednesday, as Christine was saying. We'll have an Ash Wednesday service here at the church. It's for all ages, so we, we will have youth and children. We'll all be a part of what we're doing, at, starting at 6.30 here in the building. And we'll be in various parts of the building for part of it. It's kind of experiential, and then we'll gather here in the sanctuary as a time to, to wrap up and, and pray, and it'll be it'll be a great time. I hope you'll join us. Again, the meal starts early, so we're starting at 5.45 for the meal, just so that we can be sure to feed everybody before we start at 6.30. During the season of Lent, it, Lent is the 40 days prior to Easter, and we mark these days as preparation for our celebration of Easter. So we, we mark these days just as a way of of emulating what Jesus did when he went into the wilderness and fasted for 40 days before his, his earthly ministry. And, and we, we take that as an example. For 40 days, we prepare to celebrate the resurrection. And so I would invite you to consider observing the season of Lent in, in a, with a means of fasting, so you could fast. What, what I will probably do is to fast for a day each week during the season of Lent. And so you could fast. One easy way to fast for a 24-hour period, if you want to fast for a day, is like lunch to lunch. Uh, and you skip two meals then, and, and you haven't disrupted too much. But you can set aside those times that you would have been cooking or eating or preparing or whatever uh, to prayer and, and focusing on the Lord's presence with you. If uh make sure you drink plenty of water if you if you fast, I just want to say that if if fasting doesn 't work for you if um, fasting from food because of your because of health or activity or or whatever it is you may you may consider fasting from something for the entirety of the season of Lent, so lots of people fast from chocolate or sweets or whatever they whatever is a temptation to them. If you're like me, sweets and chocolate are a temptation. And so that might be a good thing. But you may consider fasting from something else that is a temptation to to take up time. Social media, TV, uh, Zillow.com, or checking the price of Bitcoin, or Costco ads, or whatever it is. Whatever it is, these are just ideas that just come to mind as I think about, you know, things. The purpose of fasting during Lent is just to make a small sacrifice, make a small sacrifice and focus on, on God's presence uh, to, to strip away things that we might depend on that are not the Lord. And so we, we strip those things away during Lent. We, we not only put things down in fasting, but we also take things up. And so we we take up practices that orient our, our focus to the presence of the Lord with us. And so one of those ways is the devotional guide that we're offering. If you'd be interested in, in adding Jaron Rowell's devotional guide for, for the next 40 days, I'd encourage you to pick one of those up. Pastor Bill will be with them in the fellowship or in the foyer after church. And so I'd encourage you to pick those up. But maybe you want to read through the Gospels. Um, that'd be a, a different practice to pick up. You could read the four Gospels over the 40 days. That'd be 10 days per Gospel. That's simple, right? You could commit a certain time of day to prayer each day. You could commit, or be in, if you're interested in volunteering in our community, uh, we have lots of community ministries that we can connect you with, or you can volunteer here at the church during the season of Lent. All of those are, are ways to just focus our attention on the Lord during this season. And so I'd encourage you to consider how you might observe the season. And uh, and so that we, the idea of observing Lent is to prepare our hearts for, for Easter, right? And so we prepare our hearts for Easter so that the day of, of Easter is a day of celebration. And it builds anticipation if you're fasting or, or if you have a practice the the idea of getting to through that season kind of builds anticipation for the celebration of Easter. It builds builds anticipation. We get we get excited for big big transitions and big changes and, and anticipation builds when we when we know a change is coming, right? And and so it's a way of, of building anticipation. When our family first moved to ecuador uh, we we were excited about the idea of getting out of of quito uh, when when we got to the city we we were in a big city and we lived on a on a seminary campus we had a, maybe a couple of acres of ground that we felt very very safe in and then when we first moved there, we didn't speak much of the language we didn't know how to get around we were we were afraid we'd get lost or worse, we would find ourselves into a part of town that wasn't safe. And and so for our first couple of weeks in, in a different country, we, we were kind of scared. We were kind of scared of going anywhere. And we, we wanted to like explore, and then we wanted to explore outside of the city. And the first trip we took outside of the city, a big group of, of missionaries was going, and so it was safe. Uh, we went to Mindo, which is a, a tourist trap just outside of Quito. It's like an hour from the from where we lived. And we rode a bus there. It was all high adventure. We were, we were really excited. Mindo is a community with lots of bird watching and ecotourism, which I think is just another way of saying bird watching. And there's there's all kinds of, of eco things to do there. i I lived for for a while where ecotourism was a big deal. I still I think it's just bird watching. I think they point out moss and, and rocks, too, while you bird watch, and that makes it eco-touring. I, I'm not sure. So we went to Mindo. We we found ourselves... We, ha- we had young children, so rafting wasn't like long hikes to see birds. That, that wasn't going to happen. But we found out that in Mindo, there was a butterfly farm. We found out that there was a butterfly farm, and a butterfly farm with little girls. That's exciting stuff, right? So... We, we found this butterfly farm, and they have this big room, this big room that's netted over. It's, so it's sort of outside, but there's nets. And, and inside of it, there's just like thousands of butterflies. And for a small fee, for a small fee, you can enter into this netted room and be swarmed by butterflies. And, and we thought, this is going can be great, this is a magical experience we're, we're going to have, and 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 it was. Well, we paid our money and we walked in, and we realized that what we had paid for was similar to the experience of, of walking too close to the porch light on a hot summer night <laughs> when it's. And, and so we had little children. We had small. We had a one and a, one, almost two year old. And she wanted to interact with the butterflies, and we were trying to be excited about seeing the butterflies, so we would say, look, there's a butterfly. Well, the people at the at the butterfly farm tell you, if you touch the wings of the butterfly, they will die, and it will be your fault that they have died. And so, immediately, the, the almost two-year-old, she wants to interact with this thing that we're pointing out, and we're so excited that, and, and her only way of interacting with it is to grab it by the wings. And pick it up, and isn't this interesting? And then we were so excited for her to see it, and all of a sudden, we are so excited for her to drop it. And and please don't, don't interact with it that way. And then the five-year-old and the two adults, we were not quite as enthused about touching or being touched by butterflies as anybody else that was there. And so I had a picture. You know how you, like, lose stuff? and you move. I had this wonderful picture of Alyssa very bravely holding a butterfly, and she almost is making a smile that looks comfortable. (laughs) She she is putting on a good face, and I've looked and searched, and I just couldn't find it today, so... Or this week. So anyway, that, that was the butterfly farm. The, ma- the, the, the magic of the experience didn't last long, but there was something interesting at the butterfly farm. The butterfly farm was, in order to have a constant population or a consistent population of butterflies, they also have thousands of, of cocoons, chrysalises, that are, are in various stages of, of getting ready to, to hatch butterflies. And butterflies are, are in the cocoon for, for five between 5 and 28 days, depending on the species. So, so they have all kinds of species there, all kinds of different times, different sizes, different cocoons that look different. And, and that part was really fascinating to me. The, the butterflies would come out, I didn't know this, they come out of the chrysalis and their wings are very wet. And so they can't fly with their wings as wet as they are when they come out of the, out of the cocoon. And so they hang with their wings upside down on the outside of the, of the cocoon, and, and their wings drip. And they dry out that way, and they start to kind of flutter their wings, and pretty soon they're dry enough. They can, after a few hours, they can start flying away and, and find people to fly in their faces. And it's just, that's the life of a butterfly. The the chrysalis, the cocoon. This thing is so interesting to me, though, like because you can see the caterpillars, right? And a caterpillar is, it's, you know, maybe it's a lovely shade of green, but it's just green, and it's just kind of a green worm, right? Just kind of a weird green worm, and somehow that weird green worm thing knows knows to do the thing that it's never done before it knows that somehow it can make it can make like silk and wrap itself up and it and somehow it knows like god has just implanted in it the instinct to do this amazing thing that it it only does once in its life and and god's just programmed it to do this one thing one time in its life and then it emerges looking nothing like like i started i thought surely the little worm thing looks like the body of the butterfly but it's not true they it completely changes into something totally different and it emerges this beautiful amazing flying thing and and so it it just makes me wonder how, how does that happen does how does it know and then like we know that if we if it if it goes in and that particular species is supposed to, to be in there for 10 days. If you try to take it out after nine days, you don't have a butterfly. You have a dead insect. Like It doesn't, it doesn't work. You can't, you can't tell it. Stay in there an extra day. You can't tell it. You're coming out early. It, it knows, or God has wired it to transform in this, in this amazing way. And, and so it just is, it's just really fascinating to me. I wish I had that picture. I'll find that. I'm going to keep looking because I'm sure I have that picture somewhere. She's so brave with that butterfly on her finger. Traditionally, the Sunday before Lent, this Sunday is, is known as Transfiguration Sunday. And so the Gospels, the, the stories that tell the, the life of Jesus in the Bible, they all tell a story, uh, three out of the four of them, tell the story of Jesus taking three of his disciples up to a mountaintop, and on the mountaintop, he is, the Bible word is transfigured. And it's the only time, growing up in the church, the only time I ever heard the word transfigured was in, uh, in relationship to this story from Jesus' life. What happens is that his, his face starts to, to glow white, like light is coming out of his skin, and his clothes change into a brilliant white, the Bible says and And then there's a, a cloud descends, and the voice of God is heard, and Moses and Elijah show up and and the disciples are flabbergasted don 't know what to do with this experience and and this is an important an important story from the life of Jesus. This is a story that reminds us of jesus 's identity because God speaks from heaven in that moment and and confirms that Jesus is his one and only son and confirms that we are to listen to the words of Jesus so Jesus is an authority according to God the Father so this is an important an important story from from the life of jesus i 'd encourage you to look at it i 'm not going to read it for you today. you can find it in Matthew chapter seventeen, the first thirteen verses if you want put you know like bookmark that and read it later today uh, but i I want to talk about This idea of of transformation and transfiguration. Because if we we look through the Bible, when we we look at the Bible, we realize that Jesus is not the first person to have an experience of transfiguration. Would you believe that? There there is somebody in the Old Testament. It's Moses. Moses is, is in the Old Testament. He was known to have a face that glowed. It sounds very similar to what Jesus experiences in, in the Gospels when he was transfigured. And Moses's face glowed. I'm going to read you just a little excerpt from the book of Exodus, talking about Moses as he, as he has been up in the, on the mountaintop, receiving God's law to, to deliver to the people. Moses hears the voice of God, he sees God's presence, he is in God's presence, and then he comes down off the off the mountain, and, and we read this in, in, this is Exodus 34, 29 through 35, and I, I think it'll be on the screen, it is on the screen here. So it says, when Moses came down Mount Sinai, carrying the two stone tablets inscribed with the terms of the covenant, He wasn't aware that his face had become radiant because he had spoken to the Lord. So when Aaron and the people of Israel saw the radiance of Moses' face, they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called out to them and asked Aaron and all the leaders of the community to come over, and he talked with them. Then all of the people of Israel approached him, and Moses gave them all the instructions the Lord had given him on Mount Sinai. When Moses finished speaking with them, he covered his face with a veil. But whenever he went into the tent of meeting to speak with the Lord, he would remove the veil until he came out again." Then he would give the people whatever instructions the Lord had given him, and the people of Israel would see the radiant glow of his face. So he would put the veil over his face until he returned to speak to the Lord. Now this is kind of an obscure, strange story from the Old Testament. This is a story that we don't honestly there's not a lot of reason to to hear about this story as christians we i don't know what we would do with this story if it just were there with no other context given to it i mean it speaks to it speaks to the power of god's presence right that it could make a human face radiant as, as exodus says and it speaks to the closeness of god and moses it speaks to to how intimate they were this has to be miraculous. I think it has to be miraculous because the as as a little bit of a skeptic, my mind wants to say, well, maybe he was just like severely sunburned, right? Like maybe the presence of God is just it's when we think about heat and light in our own terms, like maybe the presence of God is just like so hot and bright like if you've ever uh guys who and ladies who weld know that if you don't cover up the heat and the light it'll it'll burn you and and you know anybody who's been out in the sun without without sunscreen or a hat knows like and so maybe it was maybe you know this is my skeptical brain like maybe it's just like third degree burns he's he is blistered and and almost disfigured because he spent this time uh, but I, I, I think, I think the the children of Israel, who were wandering through the desert, were familiar with sunburn. Uh, I think that they were familiar with burns. Right? P- these are people cooked over open flames, and and so, I, I struggle to, to imagine that simply like blistered burn like third degree burn would cause them to say whoa buddy put a, put a veil on that face like i i i struggle to believe that they would actually be they would be so offended by by just a burn that they would want him to cover up and and so i th- i think this is a miraculous a miraculous happening it isn't just that god's God's presence is so hot and and bright, but again for us as christians i i don't i don't know exactly what you do with this uh, with this story if it if it stands alone, but it doesn't stand alone and it turns out that the apostle paul as he was writing letters to to the churches and specifically when he wrote to the church in corinth past, uh, the apostle Paul picked this story up. And Paul used this story to talk about the difference between the old way and the new way and i and I just need to to address what Paul means when he talks about the old way and the new way real really really quickly if you 're already there in second Corinthians three you can look in verse seven paul Paul describes the old way he says the old way was the law which was etched on stone, and so he 's referring to As we read in in Exodus 34, he's referring to all of the terms of the covenant that God had delivered to Moses on the mountain. He's talking about all of the system of of rules, of sacrifices, of the way that God had given his people to interact with him, to experience uh, forgiveness for the sins that they committed, and to stay away and avoid sin. Uh, All of that is what Paul is referring to as the old way. Meanwhile he he contrasts that with the new way and in in verse 8 Paul says that the new way is the holy spirit giving us life. And so this this is the way that Paul intends and and Paul believes God intends us to live as christian people. And so this is what we're what we're looking at really the the idea of this new way. And that that all of that to set up 2 Corinthians 3 starting in verse 12. And, and so starting in verse 12, we've, we've been here, you're almost ready for lunch, and we're finally to First Corinthians 3, as promised. Uh, 1 Corinthians 3, 12, I'll, I'll read until the end of the chapter here, verse 18. It says, Since this new way gives us such confidence, so this new way, the, the way of the Spirit giving life, since this new way gives us such confidence, we can be very bold. We are not like Moses, who put a veil over his face so people of Israel would not see the glory, even though it was destined to fade away. But the people's minds were hardened, and to this day, whenever the Old Covenant is being read, the same veil covers their minds, so they cannot understand the truth. And this veil can be removed only by believing in Christ. Yes, even today, when they read Moses' writings, their hearts are covered with that veil, and they do not understand. Verse 16, But whenever someone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. For the Lord is the Spirit, and wherever the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. So, All of us who have had that veil removed can see and reflect the glory of the Lord. And the Lord, who is the Spirit, makes us more and more like Him as we are changed into His glorious image. Amen. So in this passage, Paul, Paul harkens back to that story of Moses from the Old Testament, right? He, he uses that imagery of the veil that Moses used to hide his glowing face from the children of Israel as they wandered through the desert. And Paul takes up that, that image of the veil that Moses used to cover his face, and he, he, he changes the metaphor. He uses that metaphor in a number of different ways. And in each of the ways, he talks about the way that the, the veil has a certain sort of power that it exerts. And so the the first most obvious thing that, that uh, the veil does is that it gives Moses the power to hide a little bit. Moses is able to hide. He's able to hide himself in his own little veil world, and he's able to hide the other people uh, around him from the glory of God that's shining out of his face. In verse 13, we read, Moses put a veil over his face so the people of Israel would not see the glory even though it was destined to fade when we read Moses's story in in the old testament it's interesting we we get a sense that Moses just had like this constant glow right in in Exodus 34 it it seems like the glow the glow is just glowy all all the time and he's just glowing when paul reads Exodus he reads it a little differently than than the way i read it because paul paul reads it and he says that that glow was destined to fade. That glow faded. And, and the way that I understand Paul to be talking about the veil is that Moses used it almost as a way of keeping the people in, in the dark about how frequently he was in God's presence. Like, the, the way that Paul seems to, to make it sound is like when Moses entered God's presence, he would get recharged, and he'd be really glowy. And then he he would be outside of God's presence for a while, and and the 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 shine would start to dull. And and so the veil became almost like a a way of Moses keeping people out, keeping people from knowing just how glowy his face was, or or just how intimate he had been with the Lord. And so Paul sort of sort of indicates that this is. This was a trick that Moses had for, for keeping people out. For, for not letting other people know, oh, you can see on Moses' face, he's been in the Lord's presence today. Or, wow, when was the last time Moses was in the Lord's presence? It, it, makes, me, it makes me think a little bit about, about the veil that we might use to hide behind The in a different sermon would would ask that question, Uh, but that's not where the sermon's going today. So, the hiding power of the of the veil was practical for for God's people because they they were they were disturbed. (laughs) They were disturbed by by the glory of God. That's interesting. Another interesting thing to think about: the 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 glory of God was radiating. From Moses' face, and the people said, We don't want to see that. Cover it up. Whew. Another sermon would would be a, a, a another sermon. When have you reflected God's glory so well that other people can not bear to look at it? Hmm. So the the hiding power of the veil is is reciprocal it it keeps moses hidden and it keeps the people from experiencing god's glory that's shining off of moses's face but then paul changes the metaphor and and he talks about the veil that covered the people's minds regarding the law in in verse 14 we read god's people's minds were hardened and to this day, whenever the Old Covenant is being read, the same veil covers their minds so they cannot understand the truth. Okay, so the veil was, in, in the Moses' face veil, was to keep people from seeing the glory of God, right? That is the same thing that the veil does when it covers people's minds as they read the, the rules of the Old Covenant, Uh, It has the power to keep people from experiencing the glory of God that was available in the law. Now, the the glory of God that was available in the law. We often think of the law, and, and it's easy to think of the law, the Old Testament law. It's easy, like many of you are reading through the Bible with me right now. And we have read those first five books of the Bible, or if you're reading chronologically, you're not quite there, and you're trying. And uh, the those first five books of the Bible, man, it seems like it's just rule after rule after rule after sacrifice for when you broke that rule so that you can make it right. And it's it's just so regimented and so much a system that you have to, like, work yourself into the system to fit God's mold. And and if you do it all perfectly, like, really, really well, then you can be acceptable to God. When God brought his people out out of Egypt and brought them into the wilderness and and when god when God promised them a new land that they would live in he he didn 't do that to cram them into his mold to make them acceptable to him. God brought a people out of slavery in Egypt, and he took he says he took a nation that wasn 't a nation, a people that wasn 't a nation, he made them a nation. He did that for the purpose of revealing his glory. To the world. That's the purpose of the Old Testament law. The purpose of the Old Testament law is so that God's people would reflect his goodness and glory to the world. And so, the people had this veil up when they they read the law, Paul says. And what the veil did is it allowed them, they they were able to hear all of the rules, and they were able to hear about all the sacrifices, and they were able to hear about all, the, all of the dates and all of the important festivals that were supposed to be observed. But somehow that veil kept them. Somehow that veil kept them from experiencing the glory of God and from, for, from reflecting the glory of God to the world by, by living out the glory of God that was available to them. And so Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3.15, he says that the veil kept the people from understanding. They, they can't comprehend the purpose of God's law because the veil kept them in the dark. They were unable to reflect God's glory because the veil kept, kept their darkness inside and it kept God's glory outside. And, and, it, and it had this power to, to just keep them from from fulfilling the law completely, which would be giving glory to God. And so, amazingly, Jesus comes and he says, I didn't come to get rid of the law, I came to fulfill it. And then he gives us, I'm getting ahead of myself. The veil that Moses, let Moses hide, kept the people from experiencing God's God's glory. It also has this other mysterious sort of uh, power or or aspect to it, it, it in that it is impossible for people to remove on their own. It's impossible for people to remove on their own. The, this comes back to a fundamental Christian belief. Fundamental Christian belief is that we are incapable of even knowing that we need God's help without God's help. <laughs> we need God's help to to let us know that we need God's help. And when we understand that we need God's help, when when we when God speaks to us and we hear God saying "You need me," we are still dependent on God to help us and and to work in our hearts and our lives. We as Christians Christians believe that we we cannot make ourselves good Christians without God's work in our lives. It's not by the the strength of character of of the Christian people you're surrounded with—that they are good Christian people. I mean, they have strong character; they are good people. But it is because God is helping them that they are able to live lives pleasing to God. And and so the gift that that God offers us is is only is something that we can't accept on our own. Like we, God offers us His glory, but we can't we can't experience it if we don't have God helping us to. To let us know we need it and, and to help us turn in his direction, and so Paul says in verse sixteen, But whenever someone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away, so we we aren't able to know that we need to, but but our responsibility when we understand that we need god 's help, it's not to say i'm going to be God, and i 'm going to change myself now, it is to turn." toward the Lord. and We turn away from the law and the rules or whatever we're trying to, to use to get ourselves to, to be acceptable by God, and we turn to the Lord. We turn to the Lord. Paul, Paul when he talks about this, he, he talks about the Spirit being the Lord. He, he also has in mind the idea that, or, or that the Lord is the Lord Jesus. And, and so... Paul, Paul says, "Our responsibility, our the, the thing we do in this relationship, is is continue to turn toward, to tor- turn toward the Lord. As long as we're trying to live by the law, as long as we're trying to make rules for ourselves that make our, ourselves good enough for for God, even if we're focused on on being good people, if if we're not depending on the Lord." If we're not turned toward the Lord, we're focused on the wrong thing. We're not focused on God. And so rules and the law, they keep us from focusing solely on God. They they keep reminding us that we're not good enough. <laughs> they keep discouraging us along the way, right? they they keep us focused on our sin and how far we have to go god god says focus on me focus focus on the lord turn toward the lord and paul says says just stop stop trying on your own stop trying on your own to to be good enough and turn toward the lord whenever anyone turns toward the lord the veil is taken away and then he says in, in verse 18, he talks about all of the good things that happen when, when we do that, when we, when we stop trying to make ourselves good enough and we turn toward the Lord. When, when we do that, we, we begin to reflect the glory of the Lord. He says in verse 18, the first part, so all of us who have had the veil removed can see, we can see and reflect the glory of the Lord. So if we're focused on everything else, if we, if we have not turned ourselves and, and, and turned our orientation toward, toward the Lord, we can't see God's glory. We can't see it. We're like the children of Israel who are trying to obey every aspect of the law but weren't experiencing the purpose of the law. We, we can see God's glory and we can reflect God's glory. We, you, <laughs> you could reflect God's glory. You could be so beautiful to somebody else that they say, well, put a veil on, I can't, I can't look at you. You could reflect, we, as a body, we could reflect God's glory to the Elsie Valley. And then he says that we become more like the Lord. In the, in the middle part there of verse 18, he says, and the Lord, who is spirit, makes us more and more like him. We can become more and more like the lord this is this is kind of who we are as as believers the idea is that we would be becoming more like like our savior jesus every day we could be a community of people that that are like jesus that offer love without condition that that look to to restore people that that is offers a presence that that people are attracted to and and want to experience the forgiveness and hope that is found among us. If we just turn toward the Lord, we could be that people. We could become more and more like Him. And at the end of verse 18, it says that we could be changed into His glorious image. We could become so transformed, transfigured, changed, that we could... People would look at us and, and wonder, is that is that Jay Dirty or is that Jesus? <laughs> this is the New Testament purpose for, for human beings. I think this is the biblical purpose for, for human beings. God calls out to sinful people not to remind them of their sinfulness and how far they have to go. Not to send them around feeling guilty because they don't measure up. God calls out to sinful, broken people so that they would understand God's goodness and look to his glory and begin to reflect that glory to the world around them. And, and in verse 17, <laughs> it says, For the Lord is the Spirit, and wherever the Spirit of Lord is, there is freedom. So <laughs> when we when we begin to reflect the glory of the lord see and reflect the glory of the lord and to become more like the lord and to to be changed into this glorious image we find that we aren't we aren't just like trapped and shackled by rules anymore we aren't we aren't just weighed down by the by the difficulty of trying to be like jesus we aren't we aren't like those saints of old that sometimes look like they have sucked on a lemon and haven't cracked a smile in a million years. There, there is freedom in where the Spirit of the Lord is, right? This is, this is an opportunity for us to be filled with joy and hope. This is, this is exciting. This is freedom. It is no longer slavery to sin and death. And so Jesus, Jesus went around believing that his disciples could experience this. He, he believed that his disciples could reflect his glory to the world around them. He, he, believed, he believed it so much, he looked at a bunch of kind of ragtag people from all walks of life, and he, he said, he had the audacity to say, follow me. Jesus said, follow me to people who the rest of the world would look at and say, that's not a person that's ever going to glorify God. Jesus said, follow me. Follow me. And and then Jesus had the audacity to say to that ragtag group of of people who had chosen to follow him, you're going to do greater things than I have done. You're going to do greater things than you've seen me do. Paul talked about his own transformation in the book of Romans, in, in his letter to the church in, in Rome, in, in chapter 7, he talks about how for years he had fought to make himself good enough by the standard of the law. And he couldn't do it. And he's a really good person. This is the Apostle Paul. You know, the majority of the New Testament is attributed to him. He's a really good person. He said, I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. I live by the law, and I, I just couldn't do it i every time i thought i could i couldn't the very thing i wanted to do i couldn't do the very thing i knew i shouldn't do i kept i couldn't stop doing and then he says but then the spirit of life came and took up residence in me <laughs> and it turns out that life in the spirit and life in the spirit i, I can actually please god <laughs> i have the ability to to make god happy and and to reflect his glory to the world around me. This is is the change that is made in us. This this change is true transfiguration, right? I haven't pulled apart the word transfigure. It's it's not hard to pull apart. Uh, That prefix, trans, it has a specific connotation in our culture, but originally it describes something that has crossed over or been through been through a change has gone beyond it is it is something that has that is different than it was and then figure figure can relate to a physical like we talk about the figure of a, like someone's figure their body uh physical appearance but we also talk about a figure as as a person's more like a person's essence like that is an important that person is an important figure in their community. It is the essence of that person we We believe that transfiguration is is change of the essence of a person it is It is the change of a person to to reflect god 's glory and so this is this is what transfiguration is is all about a significant change in the life of a person when jesus was was transfigured. Face shone bright. Jesus' physical appearance had changed. His clothes turned to, to dazzling white. And his disciples, who were his friends, who knew him, their jaws dropped to the ground. They couldn't believe it. They couldn't believe it. Peter says, Lord, it is good that we are here. When Moses' face was transfigured, his his face glowed so brightly that people wanted him to hide the glory of God from them. When a caterpillar goes into a cocoon, somewhere between 5 and 28 days, it, it emerges, and it's transfigured into something you would have never guessed that that little worm thing could have turned into. And when a human being stops hiding, from God behind a veil and decides that he or she cannot do it on their own. And they turn toward Jesus. They are transformed and transfigured. The image of the of the cocoon, the chrysalis, it's just so it's so powerful to me. It reminds me of a couple of, of truths about transformation. You know, every every species has a different length of time that they spend in the cocoon. Some some five days, imagine going from the little wormy thing to a flying insect, five days, like and some people are, are transformed like that, right? We we know stories of folks who who have experienced the removal of the veil, they have experienced turning toward Jesus and they are different and you don't recognize them anymore. And then there are caterpillars who spend more than five times longer in the cocoon. They spend a significantly longer period of time for, for that transformation to happen. And some Christians walk for the Lord, seeing small changes and small victories and living through small defeats before anyone notices that the glory of the Lord is starting to shine out of that person. And every, every caterpillar takes a different amount of time. You can't, you can't open up the, the cocoon too early, right? We, we all need the amount of time that God needs to work in us. We all need to, to just kind of let ourselves wait on the Lord for him to make us who, who he is making us. I don't think that there's ever going to be a time that God is going to stop making you who he is making you. He's going to keep, as long as you keep turned toward the Lord, he's going to keep changing you more into the image of the Lord, into the image of our Savior. But the thing about the, the cocoon, about the butterflies, every butterfly, every butterfly, 100%, has become a butterfly because it has gone into the cocoon. Every Christian who wants to become more like Jesus must make that decision to turn toward him. Every Christian who wants to be to reflect the glory of the Lord must make the decision to, to turn away from everything else and turn only to the Lord. And to focus only on the Lord. As as we approach the season of Lent, I think it would be a great time to decide to, to turn away from anything else and to turn toward the Lord. We're going to be doing that with the practices we take up during the season of Lent. Fasting and prayer reading good devotional material and reading scripture. These are things that, that help us turn toward the Lord and turn away from everything else. And We believe that that's part of the long, the long process. But I, I also think there, there is an important part of, of just saying, now's, now's the time. Now's the time that i'm just gonna i'm just gonna turn toward the lord i'm gonna make the decision today that tomorrow i'm gonna keep working to keep today i'm going to make the decision that tomorrow i'm going to keep working toward turning toward the lord and so this morning i we're going to have a time of prayer and i'm i'm gonna invite you to if you if you want to make that decision to keep turning toward the lord i'm gonna invite you to pray. To welcome the Lord into your heart and your life and help you to keep keep turning to turn away from anything else that that maybe is taking your focus off of turning only to Jesus um, we'll we 'll make this altar available uh, it 's not it 's not magical, but many have found that coming to a place of prayer m- and inviting the Lord's presence and and asking the Lord to direct you is, is a powerful experience. So I'd invite you to, to stand with me. Will you stand? And let's pray. If you'd like to come forward, you're welcome. If you'd like to pray where you're at, you're welcome. Mm-hmm. Invite the Lord to help you. As you seek to, to turn away from anything that isn't him and turn only to him. Let's pray. Our dear heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for your presence that is here. We thank you for your spirit that is speaking to our hearts. We thank you, Lord, that you know You know all of the things in our lives that that keep us from reflecting your glory. You know, God, all of the things that, that block us, that get in the way, all of those veils that we put up, all of the things that, that we choose to, to, to hide behind, all of the things that separate us from, from you, all of the things that distract us. God, you know everything. And Lord, you desire to help us desire to help us to get rid of those things. Lord, you know, you know our our hesitancy. You know, you know the reasons that we choose to to keep looking at at the things that aren't you. To keep depending on things that aren't you. Lord, we we know that You can you can help us because without your help, God, without your help, we cannot we cannot turn toward you. So, Lord, we pray that you would be at work in our hearts, and in our lives. You would speak to us, Lord, about those things that we need to turn away from, so that we can turn only to you. And Lord, we commit, we commit to you, we commit that today, today is a day that we will decide to turn toward you so that tomorrow as we, as we wake up and as we enter the season of Lent, that each day as we wake up, we will be turned only to you turn away from all of those things that distract and God, we, we thank you that you can, can give us the strength to keep turning away, to keep turning toward you. Because God, it is you and you alone who we want, who we want to reflect to our world. So, God, we pray that you, you would remind us of your glory and your goodness, that you would show us your power and your grace, that you would, you would open our hearts to receive your mercy and kindness, God, and that all of, all of the good that you are, God, we would be, we would be able to reflect to our world. we would be transformed into the glorious image of him who has saved us. And so God, I thank you for my dear brothers and sisters. We are attentively looking through our lives and turning to you more and more, God. We pray that you continue to speak. We thank you that you will. As we go into this week, God, we pray that we would continue to reflect. Reflect your glory and your goodness. We thank you, God. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you. You are dismissed.